Welcome to What's the Data Point, a public policy podcast brought to you by Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. Check out our work on the web at gothamgazette.com and cbcny.org, and previous episodes of our podcast on our website, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Maria Dulles from the CBC, introducing today's data point and episode. Our data point is 75%, the share of jobs gained since the recession in the New York City metropolitan region that were created in New York City. While the region outside New York City has 60% of jobs, it's only generated 25% of the job gains. This is a break with recent history. From 1990 to 2008, New York City accounted for only one-third of job growth, with most of the growth coming in the rest of the region. But since the Great Recession, it's been New York City driving regional job growth. These facts are from a forthcoming report to be released by the Department of City Planning and were revealed to us by DCP Chair Marissa Lago. Our podcast this week presents her remarks to the CBC last week. In addition to the regional economy, she also discussed the importance of the census, updating zoning regulations, and resiliency efforts in the city. We're also including a Q&A with our audience that touches on a pretty wide range of issues. Listen in and check out Gotham Gazette, which covered this event and has written about lots of DCP's recent efforts and challenges. It's also a good time to remind you to check out our podcast with Deputy Mayor Phil Thompson, which also covered the importance of the census, and with Anita Lermont, the DCP's general counsel, where we got into the weeds on some of the major rezonings during the de Blasio administration. Here we go. Good morning. It's really fun to be here among such a group of policy wonks. I feel absolutely at home. Um, I thought that I would touch the crest of the waves on four citywide topics. So I'm going to talk about the 2020 census, zoning for jobs, regional planning, and resiliency. So let me start with the census. It is an absolutely existential issue for our city, and I'd posit for every big city in the United States, because the areas that are chronically undercounted are remote rural areas, but also poor inner city neighborhoods. Now, everyone in this room knows the two reasons why the census is important. The first is representation. New York State is almost certain to lose a seat in the House because our upstate population is diminishing. But if New York City is seriously undercounted, we could risk losing a second seat. The second reason is federal funding. There are dollars attached to how big we are. Um, Approximately $7 billion a year is dependent on the size of the city. And these are funds that go for things that um, are as wide-ranging as bridge repair to funds for uh, schools in high-poverty neighborhoods. Now, this census is especially important because we're growing so quickly. Um, A couple of stats. We're currently at a population of 8.6 million. That is a 5.5% increase from the April 2010 census in under a decade. And a large part of that growth is due to our proud heritage of being a city of immigrants. Currently, 38% of our residents are foreign-born. And if you go to the borough of Queens, foreign-born residents rise to 50%. Um, Also, nearly 60% of city residents can proudly say that they are either foreign-born or have at least one foreign-born parent. And in recent years, over 50% of all kids born in our city have been born to foreign-born mothers. Without immigrants 
and their higher fertility rate, New York City would be shrinking in population. And so that's why we're very concerned about the proposal to add a citizenship question to the census. And this is especially true in a federal climate that is so outspokenly anti-immigrant. We fear that this fear will drive down the census response rate, especially in our immigrant communities. Um, a statistics even this savvy group may not know is that one in seven households in our city has an undocumented person. And we're concerned that all members of these households, whether documented or undocumented, might fear completing the census form, and this would risk a gross undercount. So I would urge you to look for opportunities in your different communities, whether professional communities, whether communities of ethnic identity, whether in church communities, to spread the word that it is absolutely everyone's right to get counted, and also that individual census responses aren't shared. Um, the support of influencers like the people in this room is critical and very much appreciated. Now, a growing population means significant increased pressure on the housing stock, and especially the affordable housing stock. Um, this audience is very well aware of the de Blasio administration's efforts, not just to increase, but also to preserve the city's housing stock. But I wanted to focus instead on another vehicle for creating affordability, jobs. Um, DCP, the Department of City Planning, our role is to create sound zoning that promotes economic development. Informally, we refer to it as zoning for jobs. Um, we do this against a really positive economic backdrop. Just as our population is at an all-time high, so are our jobs. Private employment in the city now stands at around 4.5 million jobs. And we find it encouraging that these jobs are in multiple sectors across our manufacturing and commercial zones and also at a wide range of wage levels. And while Manhattan obviously remains the economic engine, we've seen unprecedented job growth in all five boroughs. But there are problems. Um, first, if we look at neighborhood retail corridors and smaller but growing office districts, think of downtown Flushing, they're bumping up against outdated zoning, in many instances zoning that hasn't changed since 1961. So we have zoning that favors office parks surrounded by seas of parking, even in neighborhoods that are transit rich. Um, we have zoning that favors a very suburban mid-last century vision that discourages uses that are seen as beneficial today. Um, one of my favorite one is microbreweries. They are prohibited in all but our heaviest industrial zones. And why? It's a vestige of a time when breweries exploded. They were considered dangerous and had to be removed from population centers. Um, Today, though, what neighborhood doesn't cherish its artisanal micro-pub, which both brews the beer and then serves it in the same location? If we look at life sciences, it's the exact same thing. It is very hard to find properly zoned locations for this growing industry. And my favorite example are physical culture establishment, PCEs. Unless you're a really hardcore zoning wonk, you wouldn't know that that is what gyms are called. And 
Of course, gyms are ubiquitous. They are welcomed in every neighborhood, but yet they're uh, prohibited in many a zoning district. So we're working, city planning is now working on proposed changes that would facilitate jobs. And we're doing it in a couple of ways. Um, one is to um, allow industrial loft-like buildings. Think of those iconic, light-filled, chunky, funky, large floor plate buildings that are attracting cutting-edge tech industries. Um, the image should be of Dumbo or portions of Long Island City. Current zoning doesn't allow them. They're too dense, and they also don't follow the stepped-back design that was enshrined in many of our manufacturing districts in the 60s. Um, another example is to encourage offices in appropriate M manufacturing zones. Upper floor offices can easily coexist with light industry on the ground floor. But office additions, even to a one-story industrial building, are difficult to construct because our outdated zoning generally doesn't provide enough density. Um, again, in zoning speak, we limit it to a floor area ratio of one. And then finally, we're looking to rationalize our parking and loading requirements near mass transit. Um, the current requirements are blind to mass tra uh, transit. They evidence a love of the car. Um, and they're so onerous that in many instances, they prevent an existing manufacturer from expanding its space. Um, I would guess that many of you in the room have your pet peeve about a zoning restriction that just doesn't make sense anymore. And we are out there requesting groups like this and individuals, please come forward to us with your ideas of what we could, through a zoning for jobs initiative, clear away from our zoning resolution. Now, if we're going to not just sustain, but grow our economy, we also need to focus on the wider metropolitan region, which brings me to my third topic, regionalism. When I talk about the region, um, that is shorthand for 31 counties on Long Island, the Hudson Valley in New York, the near-end counties in New Jersey, and southern Connecticut. Three years ago, my predecessor, Carl Weisbrod, took a first step in breaking down local planning silos. And we now have a network of leaders of the biggest cities in our region. These are planners who recognize the interdependence of regional housing and economic trends, and leaders who recognize the commonality of our challenges, whether it's climate change or housing affordability. So let me give you a snapshot of the region. We have a GDP of 1.7 trillion, 10% of US GDP. If we somehow, we 31 counties, were to secede and form our own country, our GDP would fall between South Korea and Russia. Um, our regional workforce is over 12 million people, and that is bigger than the regional workforces of Boston, Seattle, and San Francisco metro areas combined. Um, we have 23 million people in this 31 county region. 37% of them live in New York City, but we have 41% of the jobs. And today, nearly 30% of the workforce in the city lives outside of New York City. So the result of this jobs and housing equation is millions of trips into and out of the city, mostly via public transportation, 
but that's a topic for another day. Um, later this summer, we are going to be releasing a geography of jobs report. Here is your sneak peek look at it. Um, and I thought I would preview three of the findings. This is the first time that the Department of City Planning has looked regionally, not just at what's happening within our borders. The first is that while the region outside of New York City has 60% of the jobs in the metro area, it has only accounted for 25% of the post-recession jobs gains. New York City jobs, by contrast, have absolutely roared back. Um, if we look historically from 1990 to 2008, that pre-recession, the 18 years pre-recession, New York City accounted for about a third of the region's job gains. But post-recession, we are creating 75% of the jobs that have returned to the regions. Um, the second finding of our geography for jobs analysis is that New York City is gaining younger workers, defined as 25 to 54, um, years old at three times the national average. And I hear lots of laughing. I refuse to call it prime age workers. <laughs> uh, I think prime age starts before and extends long after. Um, so while New York City is attracting these workers at three times the national average, the rest of the region actually has an aging workforce. And my final um, preview from our Geography for Jobs report is that New York City is gaining office jobs while the rest of the region's job growth is very heavily in local services and healthcare. So as a result of these three different trends, our city's reliance on a housing market that extends far beyond our borders is being reshaped. Only certain parts of our region accommodate new housing, either because of transit um, accessibility or because of local political um, forces. But the region's economic future is reliant on our collective ability to house and transport the next generation of workers. Um, last year alone, New York City exported 30,000 people to the region, although interestingly, the number of people that we are exporting to the region is declining over the past few years. Um, I'm going to end my discussion of regionalism with a plug for a fabulous new web-based tool, which is called the New York City Metro Region Explorer. This is the first interactive open data mapping tool that visualizes employment, housing, and population trends across the tri-state area. Um, it is something that we developed in-house with our um, IT folks and planners at City Planning and has been amazingly well received by the other communities in the 31 um, county area who might not have had the resources to be able to look so holistically at the region. So my final topic is also a regional challenge, and that's building resiliency. We're a waterfront city, 520 miles of shoreline. We currently have 400,000 residents and over 71,000 buildings in FEMA's 1% floodplain. That's a small city, that's a mid-sized US city in and of itself. And with sea level rise, we anticipate that the floodplain by 2050 will have grown to include a geography that currently houses 800,000 people. 
Now to enhance resiliency, um, the city has its one NYC plan and it recommends multiple lines of defenses. It starts with coastal pr uh, protection, um, infrastructure investment, emergency preparedness, but we've got to go fo uh, even further than that um, by building homes and also workplaces to more resilient standards that can both help minimize damage, but also improve recovery after the inevitable next big storm. Um, you might recall that back in October of 2013, a year after Sandy, the city adopted a flood resiliency zoning as an emergency measure. We now are working with communities throughout the floodplain, and an interesting fact of all of our community districts, only one doesn't have any um, areas within the FEMA 1%. And we're looking to develop permanent floodplain zoning. Um, we expect to release a proposal later this year, and the notion is that we're gonna enhance the temporary regulations based on what we've learned over the past five years. And we're also, again, going to address challenges that are posed by our current zoning. And let me give you an example. People in the floodplain will frequently use portions of their basement areas below grade as living area areas. We want to encourage them to not be using that. And we have to look at how we can recapture that floor area for homeowners. Um, we also want to encourage long-term resiliency investments in the flood zone, not just to take measures to address today's flood risk, but also future flood risks. And we call that the future-proofing of buildings. Um, another dollar and cents issue of great concern is flood insurance premiums, which are rising. Um, Congress has long wrestled with the National Flood Insurance Program because FEMA has paid out far more in revenue, um, I, I'm sorry, has paid out far more in losses than it receives through the annual premiums. Um, so now Congress is seeking to make the program more solvent by increasing the premiums. Um, these increased premiums are being viewed as an incentive to homeowners to have them elevate their homes. Now, in much of the country, buildings and flood zones are your white picket fence detached single family homes. Um, difficult, but doable to elevate that structure. Think about New York City. It can be difficult for a homeowner to elevate her home when it's attached to a neighbor's home or maybe a couple of dozen neighbors' home in a multi-story apartment building. So the end result of this is that these rising insurance premiums can have the impact of making our housing stock even more unaffordable. And we need Congress to incentivize building retrofits that are more appropriate for dense urban areas like New York. Uh, currently, FEMA has an all-or-nothing approach. You fully mitigate all of your flood risks, or you get no reduction in your flood insurance premium. That doesn't make sense outside of the single-family detached home. We're arguing if you have a multi-story apartment building and can't fully remediate it, but you can move that boiler out of the basement and up onto the roof, there should be a proportional reduction in the flood insurance premium. Um, Senator Schumer and Gillibrand are both at the forefront of pushing for these types of changes, but I would urge support from those in this room because we know how difficult it is to get traction in Washington. 
So in conclusion, I'll note that seawalls and bulkheads can help to protect our city, our region from future storms, but these investments are costly and challenging to implement, uh, especially in a city with such a wide diversity of built forms, and as I said before, a full 520 miles of coastline. So from the department's point of view, we think it's critical that we update our land use policies to encourage resilient buildings to plan for the future of neighborhoods. Um, these resiliency measures are needed every bit as much in our commercial areas um, as in our residential areas. And these measures are needed everywhere in our city and our region. Um, because as Sandy taught us, Mother Nature knows no boundaries, and certainly she does not adhere to political boundaries. Um, as you leave, you will see on the desk part of our uh, promotional materials. This is called Planning for a Resilient New York, and it's a huge fold-out map that is full, chock-a-block full of different ideas and tips for enhancing resiliency in different types of uh, flood-prone areas and for different types of buildings. And with that, I'll gladly take your questions. Your information was very informative. We all know that there's a need for additional housing in New York, and with that comes density. But how do you explain to neighbors who might not want a high-rise building next to them that it is necessary and appropriate from a zoning standpoint that they lose their view? This is um, a conundrum. Thank you for the question. It's a conundrum that we face every day. Um, I can actually quote um, Sean Pinsky um, as saying, you can't be for affordable housing and against density. But that said, density in appropriate places. Um, when we look at locations that are appropriate for additional density, one of the key factors is public transit. Another is sites that are on wide streets that can take additional height and density. And I'll say that we have rediscovered um, a, an areas that are ripe, which are areas along elevated railroad tracks. Traditionally considered way too noisy for housing. With advances in building technology, we can now raise the buildings above the levels of the tracks and provide safe, secure, transit accessible housing. Um, the issue of height also comes into play. And we actually looked at um, our statistics for completed residential buildings in 2017. Now, I'll start with small buildings. And I think in our city, we can probably agree small buildings are six stories or fewer. 87% of completed residential buildings in 2017, 80% of them were six stories or fewer. But they provided just 24% of the units. 87% of the buildings, 24% of the units. If we go up to somewhat tall buildings, which I'll define as above 20 stories, those are just 3% of the completed residential buildings in 2017. But that 3% of the buildings provided 41% of completed units. And what to me was the most absolutely shocking statistic are tall buildings, 40 stories or more, the ones that tend to attract a lot of attention. 
In 2017, there were only 18 such buildings completed in the city. That is 1% of the completed building, of the completed buildings, but those 18 buildings provided 22% of the completed units. And each of those buildings is in a high opportunity, centrally located, transit-rich neighborhood in either Manhattan, Brooklyn, or Queens. And so these buildings are the absolute workhorses of housing our growing population. Thank you for exciting initiatives. I was hoping maybe you could comment on the approval process with the buildings department and landmarks, especially for retailers. It's a very challenging environment right now. And you hear these stories how sometimes it takes a year, year and a half to get open for business. And of course, we all want to see New York City to continue to be uh, a place where businesses view us as being pro-business. So any, any thoughts on how we could speed up that review process? Um, with the caveat that I'm not responsible for either of the departments, although work extremely closely with my counterparts there, um, I think that the initiative that Landmarks is undertaking to move many of the more ministerial approval processes um, to not require a Landmarks Commission vote, which comes with an attendant public hearing, I think is a step in the right direction. Um, I think the other is um, a dynamic that I certainly encourage for my agency. I know that um, people don't always want to be crying and escalating things above the level of the frontline examiner, or in my case, the planner. But I do think it is important in appropriate cases to escalate because um, like my counterparts at Building and Landmarks, we run large agencies and are not aware of where all bottlenecks are. And sometimes the well-timed phone call can actually help not just your particular project, but a category of similar projects. Uh, Marissa, this was terrific information, um, but many of us perceive that there are these stretches of retail that are empty. More broadly than the permitting and, and such, is there any sort of future vision given the Amazon factor of how uh, retail, which probably will be restaurants, personal services, other yeah. things that actually kind of make it more like a little village, uh, and increase jobs at sort of levels that are that are neither office and industrial nor just, I mean, some of the service jobs may be a bit low wage, but what's the vision for how we fill up those stores on Upper Broadway? It's interesting that you ended with Upper Broadway because I do think that there is Upper Broadway and then there are our neighborhood retail districts. Um, if you go up to Inwood, absolutely bustling. If you go out to Flatbush in Brooklyn, as lively as can be, uh, try finding space in downtown Flushing. And so um, I, I don't think we should paint with a broad brush. The other neighborhoods, out, uh, the business districts outside of Manhattan or in upper Manhattan are very much characterized by servicing the local needs that are there, the local populations. Um, but you raise a good issue just more broadly about the future of retail. Um, I think we need to do a few things. One is to not um, give in to the desire to have government curate retail. I do think that it will be the private sector that is going to respond. It can respond in a number of ways. Um, landowners' expectations of the rents that they're going to be able to get may moderate. Um, the first, I think, New York sports club came to the city after 1990. 
they're now ubiquitous. So as you said, services are beginning to take the place. So I am very um, bullish on having the private sector figure out how to repurpose this, um, the spaces, but again, would welcome recommendations if you're encountering zoning restrictions that you think are making the retail scene that much harder. The, the flip side of it, if I might add, is that industrial space for distribution, for warehousing and distribution for the last mile, is actually now seeing a surge in demand. Uh, good morning, Marissa. Thank you so much for doing this, and special shout out to Carol and, and Betsy and Mora uh, for their for their hard work. Um, in my former life, I was chief of staff to Congressman Greg Meeks, and one of the things that we were working on at the time was the revitalization of Far Rockaway and downtown Far Rockaway. I want to simply say thank you for your leadership in getting that area finally revitalized. I think there's going to be a lot of new investments. Uh, Councilmember Richards and what he's doing out there is just it's a fantastic story of how when government decides to work, things can truly happen, and that's in large part to your leadership. Um, given the recent tax plan and the formation of these new opportunity zones, how is the City Planning Commission positioning itself to take advantage of that with the development community here in the city? It's a great question, and thank you for mentioning the roles of both Congress Member Meeks and Council Member uh, Richards. We could not have had um, better partners. I know that what is always um, attractive in the press is a controversy about a rezoning, but if one looks at downtown Far Rockaway and the strong political support and community support, I'm also really pleased to announce that I recently signed off on the first phase of the public realm improvements on that giant empty parking lot. Um, and obviously the library, those are tangible investments um, in a community that, that sorely, sorely needed them. Um, with respect to the opportunity zones, this is an area where we are working closely with the state because we had to work with the state as far as uh, designating the zones, but also with a, um, a trio um, of agencies. Um, I don't think a day goes by that the teams of the city's Economic Development Corporation, Housing Preservation and Development, and City Planning are not working hand in glove because our areas of expertise and interest overlap. Um, in looking at how we can tap into any programs, it's a combination of our assessment of what the needs are, what the community wants, and also political support. And I cannot stress enough that in our current system of government, the need, the fact that land use decisions go to council members means that we welcome the enlightened leadership of people like our current speaker, Johnson, um, like council member Richards, um, a, a shout out to council members Gibson and Cabrera, who were absolutely instrumental in uh, driving through the rezoning of Jerome Avenue in the Bronx. Good morning, thanks for your remarks. Um, I want to applaud what the administration has been doing to address affordable housing in the city, but you can always do more. And I wonder whether you've given any um, consideration to two maybe simple things that can be done. Is there a way to um, streamline the EULA process for the rezoning for affordable housing projects? That always seems to take years before a project can come out of the ground. And also, have you considered 
levying impact fees on non-residential developments to help fund affordable housing? Um, with respect to the latter, I'll leave that to my tax colleagues way out of my realm. Um, but what I find interesting about ULERP is that some people say it takes too long, some people say it's too slow. And I think a lot of that depends upon whether one likes or doesn't like a project. Um, with our neighborhood rezonings, ULERP is the hair on the tail of the dog. It's preceded by years of working with the community in a comprehensive neighborhood planning effort. Um, we frequently, when we're working on neighborhood plans, are told, whoa, you're going way too fast. There's too much change. And then we hear the flip side, why does it take so long? Um, is ULERP perfect? No, but it's it stood the test of time. What I like about ULERP is the fact that once the clock starts, and there's clearly the challenge of getting to the starting line, the clock is inexorable. The second is that it has so much opportunity for public input. Um, at the community board level and frequently at a land use committee before a full hearing at the community board, at the borough president level, at the city planning commission where I can tell you the commissioners take the public hearings deadly seriously. Um, and then finally at the city council. And so I would urge that any proposals to amend ULERP be preceded by extremely careful study. That's what was done when it was last amended in the context of charter change. I think that hasty changes um, could actually end up with detrimental results. And I certainly um, do not think that extending the clock forward, as some have argued, um, is the right direction to go. Hi, I was going to ask about the Charter um, Commission prospects, but I'll shift and um, maybe ask you about uh, the discussion around basement conversions and the legalization of all the conversions that have happened in Queens, Brooklyn. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on what's going on there. That is clearly a housing stock, a significant housing stock. And I'll actually, Richard, tie your question back to the census. It is extremely important that we count people who are living in these basement apartments, regardless of the legality of it. Um, I'll note that over the past year, um, the Department of City Planning has had people out in the field looking for units that don't appear on the Census Department's official list. Because if a form isn't sent to your house, there's no possibility of the family completing the census. And this is the third census in which the Department of City Planning has done this block-by-block block field work, and we've added over 100,000 addresses to the lists. Um, it is, we are currently conducting a pilot in East New York. It seemed a ripe neighborhood, both because it is known to have a large number of these basement units, and because we, through our neighborhood planning process that led to the rezoning, understand the neighborhood extremely well. And we have in Council Member Espinal a willing partner to do this. So those we thought were the ingredients. Um, this is requiring a large amount of 
technical work, um, technical in making sure that we know that basic life health safety considerations are addressed. A lot of education work with the owners of the buildings who frequently are living upstairs about what it entails. And HPD is an essential partner in looking at the finances of it. It's a pilot program, and I think our ambitions are reasonable. We're not anticipating that we are immediately going to go wholesale, but we want to explore in a willing neighborhood um, what are the factors that um, suggest their unit is appropriate for conversion. Uh, thank you. I was wondering about, uh, you mentioned in the beginning the importance of the counties immediately surrounding the five boroughs in uh, adding to the housing stock. And I was wondering if you could comment on the dynamics there and what levers, if any, the city has, the city government has, on encouraging uh, those counties to uh, help. Um, with respect to actual physical levers, I don't think they're there. The approach we've taken is, one, to not be insular and view um, that evil empire on the other side of the Hudson as taking away jobs and residents from us and realizing that New York City itself benefits when the counties around us benefit. Um, the second, though, is in our work with the 31-county region, we didn't approach it by saying, we're New York City, we're going to tell you what needs to be done. We instead realized that we had a research capacity, we had a planning capacity, and an interest in the region that would allow us to do analysis um, that would be useful to our colleagues. And we have been surprised at the level of interest and the level of sustained interest. Uh, we've previewed this geography of jobs with our, our planning colleagues, and um, there's tough news in there about what is happening with jobs, the fact that New York City is gaining the job growth, but it is not being viewed as a hostile act, but rather as useful information. Um, I'm not going to be Pollyanna-ish enough to say that we can plan together for the region, but I think that this is a very encouraging step, and that if we were to reconvene five years hence, um, I suspect that we would see, um, we would have a good tale to tell. Thanks, Carol. So that was some good Q&A with Marissa Lago, the DCP chair. That's all we have for today. Ben and I will be back soon with our regular programming. Remember to check cbcny.org and gothamgazette.com for our latest stories and reports. Reach us directly with your reaction to the show and ideas for future episodes on Twitter at Maria Dulles and at TweetBenMax. You can also find Gotham Gazette at Gotham Gazette and CBC at CBCNY as well. This is Maria signing off. Thanks for listening. Bye.